G'day, I'm Rob. And I'm Dave. And you're listening to the Doctor Who show for the month of August. August, Dave! I can't believe we're at the end of August already. This year has seemed so long and yet so short. (laughs) That's a very good way of putting it, actually. Uh, It feels like a lot has happened and yet not much has happened. Nothing has happened, that's right. (laughs) Listeners, tonight, of course, if you heard our last episode, is our Christopher Eccleston era episode. And I am really looking forward to this, Dave. This is a great era to be talking about. (laughs) It is. It's a really good era. It's the first time we've dived deep into one of the new series Doctors. We've done uh, three of the classics, but this is our first new series one, so very happy about that. Absolutely. But before we get to that, we're of course going to have our usual news and mini topics and all that sort of stuff. But before we even get to that, I have an iTunes review, Dave. Oh, fantastic. Go ahead. This is from Tom Turlow. Not sure that's a real name. Thoughtful and enjoyable five stars. He says, there are a lot of Australian Doctor Who podcasts. That's true. But this is one of the best. (laughs) Oh, thank you, Tom. I suppose when you had the original series on what seemed like an almost permanent loop every tea time on the ABC, you would be seduced by the show's quirky cut price charms. And I think that's true as well. Go on. I was just going to say, I I didn't realise this until I made the point on another podcast I guessed it on recently, where they said to me, oh, which Doctor Who did you grow up with? And I said, well, by the time I turned seven, I'd literally seen on free-to-air TV, normal weeknights, no specials. I'd seen stories from Doctors 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, yeah it, it really was very different for us. Oh, absolutely. Tom continues, The Doctor Who show is a fine example of Antipodean Whovian podcasting. Whereas Flight Through Entirety is all camp outrageous extravagance, this is a little more low-key and subdued. Both presenters clearly love the show and give an intelligent and thoughtful take on things. That's nice. There is, how should I put it, a diplomatic air to the proceedings, with neither man wanting to talk down the show. How about that, Dave? We're diplomatic. Well, I do travel a lot. (laughs) Very good. Uh, But they are not afraid to be critical, even if there is always a resolute reasonableness about their criticisms. For instance, I think it's pretty clear that neither of them are huge fans of the current showrunner, but they try to be fair and positive. (laughs) I think I'm probably more guilty of that, Dave. I don't share or or entirely understand their veneration of the Peter Davison or Davo era, and I suspect I'm a bigger fan of the Moffat era than they are but I'm sure they wouldn't take offence. All in all, a good listen. What do you make of that, Dave? Uh, I think he's worked out some of our themes. And, uh, <laughs> and, and that's fine. Look, it's, it's, it's what we try and do. I mean, we're here to celebrate Doctor Who. But also, I think a podcast is very, very dull if all you do is praise. And we, we criticise where we want, but there's no need to you know be nasty about it. Yeah. Now, I think, though, that Tom Turlow might protest a bit too much with that line, I don't share or entirely understand their veneration of the Peter Davison or Davo era. I mean, has he seen his online handle, Dave? It's Tom Turlow. (laughs) Maybe it is a real name. (laughs) Oh, maybe it is. Jeez, I didn't think of that. (laughs) But if it's not, Tom Turlow, you've named yourself after the Davo era. Well, I would say Tello is the best aspect of the Davo era, so I'm with him on that one. <laughs> very good, very good. Thank you, Tom. We had a bit of fun with that, but we, we love people giving us these reviews, not just because the reviews help people find us and all that sort of stuff, but it's really fun to hear what people think about us, and in this one also what Tom thinks about Flight Through Entirety as well, who are our good mates. Uh, yes, we did share this review with them before we uh, put it to air, and they, they enjoyed it as well, so yeah, mm. all good. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's very good. Uh, shall we move on to some news? Uh, yes, I think you've got a piece that uh, I wasn't aware of, Rob, so this is really interesting for me. Yeah, well, look, I, I wasn't even aware of it myself because it involves uh, the movie Suicide Squad or the, the next Suicide Squad movie. The, and the Suicide Squad number two, but we're really pretending number one never happened. Please forgive us, please forgive us. Yeah, something <laughs> along those lines. And I... Um, I am not a big fan of, of superhero type movies, as I've often said on the podcast. I've seen maybe half of them, and to me, they tread the same lines over and over again, and I'm not that enamoured with a lot of them. I do have favourite superheroes, though, like Batman and Iron Man and all of that. But anyway, I, I'm going off on a tangent there. Uh, the next Suicide Squad movie is coming out, and Peter Capaldi is one of the, uh, the, the stars of the film. He's the thinker, Dave. I have no idea what that is other than a statue by Rodan. So, um, <laughs> look, I know nothing about this character. I, I, I don't read the comic books. I, I follow the comic movies, um, but I don't read the books. So uh, mm. this will be really cool. Look, I, I thought that Suicide Squad, the first movie, was a, a, a real miss and really came just in the middle of that period where DC was just trying to work out what the hell they were going to do with their franchise. And mm. this is meant to be a bit of a reset along with the Batman, which we saw the preview of this week with Robert Pattinson. So uh, it, it could be that Capaldi will be sort of part of a new new resurgence for DC. Yeah, look, which which is very cool. And I, I didn't see the first Suicide Squad myself, um, although I, I've, I've seen enough clips and things from it to sort of know what it's about and, and that I didn't particularly like um, Jared Leto as the Joker. I know that much. <laughs> Not many people did. <laughs> very good. So, yes, Peter Capaldi as the thinker. He's got sort of... Um, in the picture, he seems to have, like, old valve tubes stuck onto a bald head. It's a, it's quite an interesting look. And he joins Christopher Eccleston in doing a big comic book movie, who, of course, was a villain in Thor 3, the bad one? Thor 2, the bad one? Whatever that bad one was that Christopher yeah. Eccleston tried to save, yeah. Yeah. He was also in the first G.I. Joe film, I think, as well, Eccleston. That's a deep cut, I couldn't tell you. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he was. I was working at Paramount at the time, and it's one of the ones I, I saw up in their private screening room. Oh, that was a good job, Dave, but I won't go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> what else have we got? Going going way back into the past, mm. an interview surfaced this month in the Radio Times with Brian Blessed. Now, I know that there's often been fan rumours and stories, not least from Blessed himself, about him being offered the role of the Doctor. <laughs> uh, yes. But he did put in this interview a few comments that... I actually hadn't seen before, so I'll just read out uh, what Blessed said in part. Uh, it's a long story. I was in Zed Cars for two years, and then the BBC producer, Andrew Osborne, took me for a long walk. He said, Bill Hartnell's very old, and we want a young Doctor Who. I said, really, guys? I love Doctor Who. I love watching it, but I don't see him the way that you see him. The interview then goes on, where he... Uh, where Brian Blessed says, Well, I said, his name is Who, which is not an English name at all. It's from the Far East. So I'd like to play him as like oh, Charlie Chan and make him Chinese. At which point the BBC oh. apparently lost all interest in the idea. Um, what really stood out to me there is, firstly, the idea of essentially using ill health as a cover for why William Hartnell was being forced out of the show, which was, I think you would now call creative differences. Mm. If what Brian Blessed is saying in this interview is correct, and you know it was fifty-five years ago, and Brian Blessed is a bit of a raconteur who, um, you know, skirts around the truth, but isn't always mm. entirely accurate, and you know, will will embellish for the sake of an anecdote. But if it is true, then that is really interesting that they were selling it to him as oh, oh yes, Bill Hartnell's you know ill, Ill health he needs to go. Not we just he said it was him or us, and we've said it's him. 
yeah. um, which is closer to what happened. As for the uh, the rest of it, look, that's an interesting idea. I, I'm glad they didn't go along with it, but it's very easy to think about Brian Blessed as we do now. You know, the guy who was in Flash Gordon and Blackadder and um, the Phantom Menace, and just you know that I'm Brian Blessed should have stick, mm-hmm. but. He was really somebody completely different pre-Flash Gordon, you know, particularly when he was doing Zed Cars. Big name, very serious actor. I, I've long said that at the time he was playing Augustus in like Claudius, he probably was as good, if not the best, TV actor in the UK at that time. So yeah. it would have been a big deal to get him, but it didn't happen. Yeah, and, uh, and all I'll add to that, because I do agree with what you were saying about his acting abilities, is that it's interesting that he, he tells this story about, oh, his name's who, so he should be, you know, Asian. Because Pat Troughton, didn't he want to, you know, in quotation marks, black up and do it like a, the Arabian Nights or something? Am I, am I misremembering that? I, I think he wanted to do something sort of, you know... Yes, the, the story is that Troughton wanted to be as anonymous as he could. So, you know, blacked up, big turban, big dark glasses, that sort of thing. So mm. he could go to the supermarket and I would go, oh, you're Doctor Who. Yeah. Um, so I think that his motivation was far different to Brian Blessed's, but they ended up in very similar and equally disturbing places. Yeah, gosh. <laughs> could you imagine? <laughs> well, think of the way people look at talents of Wang Chiang. Uh, now imagine <laughs> if this had happened. Oh, my God. Anyway, moving on. Uh, there's a new immersive Who experience to open in the UK, Dave. Uh, we got this from The Guardian. Apparently, they've had a, um, a Great Gatsby immersive experience over in London for uh, a little while now, and this is quite a popular thing. You go in and you sort of feel like you're part of, in this F. Scott Fitzgerald sort of world, you know, I guess they play some jazz and it's all quite, uh, well, immersive. Uh, so they're going to do this Doctor Who one called Time Fracture, where apparently... From next year, you'll be able to go in, and it's set during the Blitz. Now, this sounds very much like a Christopher Eccleston story, doesn't it? And, it does and a, a bit. And a bomb drops during the Blitz, and it rips open a rift in time and space, and Daleks and Cybermen and all sorts of things will pop out. And apparently a character from this multi-platform story that's going on at the moment, Time Lord Victorious where there's comics and there's Big Finish and there's books and there's all sorts of stuff happening. A character from Time Lord Victorious will be in it. So it sounds very sort of fanish because I, I know a lot of fans who aren't even interested in Time Lord Victorious. I'd be one of them. Uh, but apparently this is going to be a big thing and people can go in and be the hero and, and get into this immersive indoors experience and, you know, it could be lots of fun for the kids. Well, I guess when it actually happens, we'll have to wait for our friends in the UK to go along and tell us what it is and how yeah. it works and if it's any good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, whether this character from Time Lord Victorious is uh, is any any great uh, shakes in it as well. One final piece of news for me, and it's a quick piece, but I think an exciting piece, mm-hmm. and that is that they have announced that the next animated story from the 60s is going to be Fury from the Deep, which will be out in the UK on the 14th of September. It will again be available in colour and black and white. I I still don't understand the colour thing, but some people like it, so that's fine. Uh, No Australian release date, though, Robert. No, no. I mean, that's par for the course, though. I think we're always about three or four months behind with with these. Yes, I still don't think we've got Power of the Daleks version 63, whatever it is yet, have we? No, I don't think we have. Not that I've been actively looking for it, 
because I, I do <laughs> I do own those earlier versions. In fact, I'm not even sure why I would buy this new version. They've, they've slightly tweaked the visuals, I think. Yeah, I don't think that I will buy the other one. I've been told that some of the extras are very, very good, but yeah, no, I'm... I probably won't, but I, I am very keen for Fury from the Deep. I've been a little ambivalent on these animations, but Fury from the Deep is one story I really like. I really think the soundtrack is excellent. I think it would lend itself very well to animation. I'm really curious to see what they do with this one. Yeah, I mean, I'll let you in on a secret, which is I popped Faceless Ones into the uh, the old Blu-ray player oh, a month or so back, and I watched the first episode, and I thought, oh, yeah. And then I took it out because I wanted to play some other Blu-ray and I've not put it back in, you know? <laughs> and I think, I think, what kind of fan am I? Because I, I, I love the Faceless Ones novel mm-hmm. uh, back in the day, the Target novel. And, you know, this is, this is a story we've never, we've never been able to see before like this in its entirety. And, you know, it's been redone and, and I just, yeah, I watched one episode and I was kind of over it. <laughs> Yeah, I I haven't been that desperate to watch the Faceless Ones either. I think that that's one that really... I mean, we've got two existing episodes. We've got a pretty good idea of what it looks like and how it felt. Exactly. Fury from the Deep, though, I think is a story that does lend itself well to the format. It is excellent as an audio adventure. And so I think it's it's quite good. So I am actually quite excited to, to see this one. Plus, I just think it's a really good story. Oh, well, it is that, you know, so, you know, thumb, thumbs up and I will be buying it, of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we move on to mini topics? Yes, one from me, Rob. I put a little survey on Twitter earlier this month and the results interested me. So mm-hmm. I thought I'd put it out to our listeners. I asked the question, in which story do you believe the Doctor works out that something's going on with Turlo? Uh, or possibly even that Turlo's working for the Black Guardian. Mm. And the results came in. Well, first of all, I'll ask, Rob, what, what's your answer? I, I would like to think Davo was smart and onto it from the start, but just letting it play out. So, you know, if I'm going to take that tack, I'd say Mordron Undead. So 32% of people went with Mordron Undead, mm-hmm. 36% with Terminus, yeah. and 32% with Enlightenment. Okay. So I, I thought that was really interesting because I'm with you, Rob. I've always assumed that that moment where the Doctor in Mordred Undead gives Turlo back the crystal and says, mm. I think this is yours. I've always taken it as that's the moment where the Doctor realised this guy's got alien tech. He probably works out that it's guardian tech. You know, he's he's seen the key to time. He knows all that sort of stuff. Mm. He would identify that. And yeah, he's just letting this whole thing play out and that's always kind of been important to me because anytime somebody sort of gives that criticism of oh the Guardian trilogy is so rubbish you know it's Turlo trying and failing to kill the Doctor for three stories I think no it's that for one story then the Doctor clues on Terminus is about the Doctor letting it play out and Enlightenment by episode two Turlo's you know willing to jump off the side of a ship rather than kill the Doctor like that's that's a real change in the dynamic so I I was really interested that only 32% said it was Enlightenment and everyone else thought, no, the Doctor clued on way before that. Yeah, well, that's what I would like to think. And I think it's a more interesting story that way because there are then wheels within wheels. And, you know, despite what he's saying on screen, the Doctor's actually thinking something different, you know. So I've I've always liked to think that. Yeah, I'm with you. And so are our listeners, apparently. 
Very good. Very smart listeners. Uh, moving on, character options. They make the uh, the Doctor Who figures, the action figures, and, and I will say every time this comes up, I still can't believe I can buy classic Doctor Who action figures, Dave. It's, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> I can buy a Brigadier. I can buy a Joe Grant. This this is nuts. You know, for someone who grew up in the 80s where you, you wanted this sort of stuff because you were the age where you would play with action figures and they just didn't exist, to, to now sit in this era where... You can't just buy these things. It's, it's nuts. Anyway, recently there have been a couple of really nice sets that I just want to give a shout out to, uh, particularly because you can get them in Australia now a lot more easily than in the past. One is a Patrick Troughton and a Troughton TARDIS, um, ostensibly from the War Games. And one is a Pertwee and a Pertwee TARDIS, ostensibly from Monster of Peladon. And these are two really, really nice sets. And unlike past sets, like I have a Davison with uh, a case of Androzani Tardis, for example, it's covered in mud. Unlike that set, which was only sold in the UK, they do seem to be exporting them to local pop culture stores now. So although you still do pay a fairly pretty penny for them, about 80 bucks for a Doctor and the Tardis, it's still a lot cheaper than what it was costing to import them through eBay where scalpers were taking a, a bit of a, you know, bit some of the cream on top and then you were paying import duties and all that sort of thing. So I just want to give a shout out to these two sets because they look amazing, especially the Troughton one. Uh, they've even got a little rip in his pants because he gets his pants ripped during uh, War Games and uh, his Tardis in particular looks great. The colour is great. Everything looks great. And I still can't believe these things exist. <laughs> well, it's funny you should mention this, Rob, because I've actually gone out and bought some. No! Which one? So, well, not, not the ones you mentioned, but very, very, very similar. As you know, buying these character option sets, these models, these toys, whatever you want to call them, has never been a thing that I've particularly been interested in. Um, you know, different Doctor Who fans have different interests and hobbies. Some people like to make costumes and dress up as characters. Some people like to buy these sets. Uh, I collect lots of Tiger books and Virgin books. Mm-hmm. Um, different things, you know, different different things. But I've always wanted a really nice Dalek one. And I've never bought one when they've come out because I just don't notice because I'm not following it because I'm not invested in it. And then I sort of go back a year or two later and think, oh, I wonder if they've, they've got a Dalek one for sale and they're all sold out or they're on eBay for a fortune. And I'm like, no, I don't want it that much. But two sets that came out with this range... I believe it's with this range. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm new to this. Mm-hmm. Um, were the History of the Daleks sets one and two. So I bought set number two, which had a drone Dalek and a black Dalek from Dalek Invasion of Earth, because it's my favourite Dalek story, and yeah. they looked really good, and it's got the little saucer thing on the back and everything, and I got them and just thought, these are absolutely wonderful. And it's the first thing like this I have bought since I got a Daypole Dalek at the Momi exhibition in London as a kid in 1991. And uh, my Daypole Dalek is in, um, in a very bad state. It looks like Ace has taken the baseball bat to it. <laughs> uh, and it now sits along those two Daleks, which I love so much, I then went and bought the first set, which is two Daleks from the Daleks. Yeah, I'm familiar with those sets. And, and Daleks in particular, when they're, they're done in these nice, crisp moldings and they're painted so well they they just look great they don't even look like toys in particular um you know if you have them up on the shelf or even still in their packaging so i think oh great buys there dave great buys yeah no i'm really happy with them it's that classic 60s dalek look it's the black dalek but what was really interesting was i sort of thought these are really nice i wonder if there's plans to do more sets and um i kind of did a bit of a google search and just discovered there's this whole 
realm of fandom that I had no idea about, uh, where people are doing, you know, like 45-minute YouTube videos speculating about what Dalek sets are going to come out or, you know, (laughs) hour-long videos reviewing these Daleks. I thought this is... This is just so amazing. And look, I hope they don't do more. I'm not going to buy many, many, many more, but you know, maybe set from Evil of the Daleks would be really cool. Something from Remembrance would be really cool. Um, mm. I'm, I'm quite interested to see where these go. Yeah, well, look, I'm really happy, as I say, with the Doctor and TARDIS sets. They haven't done a Hartnell one, to my understanding, so they, they probably do a Hartnell one. Uh, they've done several Tom Baker ones, but they haven't done his final season. But I think that'd be a pretty easy one for them to do, given that the, the TARDIS from his era hasn't really changed from past models they've done. And they do have a, a figure already in that season's costume. So I think that could be a, a hot tip as one that might come out, a Hartnell in a, in a final season Tom Baker. And then there's just a McCoy and a Colin Baker, and uh, I'd have Doctors 1 through 7, and I'd be very happy to have that on my shelf, you know, like the classic era with each Doctor with a TARDIS, basically. Very cool. Very nice. Anyway, uh, you were mentioning books earlier. I've recently finished off my collection of past Doctor adventures with the second Doctor, Dave. Uh, I needed a couple of the more expensive books, one of them in particular being World Game, which is a Terence Dix uh, story. And uh, I I paid a, a decent amount for it, I think about 50 bucks. Uh, in the end for World Game Um, one of the other ones that's normally expensive I got a a fair bit cheaper so it sort of balanced out the prices but uh, yeah I finished my collection of PDAs with uh, the Troughton Doctor and let me tell you the the final PDAs from like about 2004-2005 I don't think they were done in huge numbers at all and they are just becoming ridiculous in in price these days you say that Rob but the other day I bought something I haven't done for a long time. I bought a original Star Trek novel, um, Star Trek Discovery, purely because it's a sequel to one of my favourite episodes of uh, the original 60s series, The Conscience of the King. Mm-hmm. And I didn't pay a lot less than 50 bucks for a brand new spin-off novel. I paid, you know, 30-something. So that's actually not unreasonable. Like, if you bought that new today, it would be $25, $30. Yeah, look, look, that is that is true. I mean, uh, I, I know they were thirteen or fourteen at the time, but Rob, that was last century. <laughs> but I'm still living in last century, Dave. In some ways, that's the I know, problem. I know, I it, know. It is weird, isn't it? Yeah, but uh, look, anyway, I've, I've finished that. I now have all the uh, Davison PDAs and all the Troughton ones. I'm not sure I want to start collecting any of the other Doctors as much as I want to, because as I say, the ones from the 2004-2005 sort of era, it really makes collecting these quite expensive. You can, you can get several novels really cheap and you think, oh, I'm onto something here, but then you try and collect the set, so to speak, and oh my God, they're so pricey. That is very, very, very true. Mm. Anyway, that wraps up the mini topics, which I think just clears the way now, Dave, to talk Christopher Eccleston. Can I put a bit of context into this very quickly, Rob? Yeah, of course. Now... Talking about the Christopher Eccleston now, like we still sort of think of this as part of the new series and it's bright and it's young and it's all very recent and it's this century, not last century. To, to, to give us some perspective, talking about the Christopher Eccleston era now is like having just watched Survival and talking about the Time Warrior. Wow. Or to put it another way, <laughs> we are as far from the Christopher Eccleston period now as somebody watching the Armageddon Factor was from An Unearthly Child. Yeah, is it? 
Isn't, isn't that, that weird? Isn't that nuts and scary and all sorts of things? Yeah, absolutely. So it, it we are we are very much entering into uh, into proper nostalgia here. This was a long time ago. This was fifteen years. It is, and look. I guess we like to start these things by talking about how we um, built up to seeing it or or how we first saw a particular new Doctor and, and so on. So I'll start with an anecdote that sort of ties into that. And, you know, normally Who fans are really good with this sort of stuff. Like, I, I know where I was when, when this happened and such. But I'm often a bit rubbish with that. I, I do know for sure that by late 2004, I knew a new series was coming and was maybe five or six months off. And the reason I know that is because I was very conscious that I needed to start buying all the old Doctor Who merchandise on eBay before prices suddenly went up. Right. <laughs> because, because I thought, you know what? In about six months, th- there's going to be this new show. There's going to be interest in Doctor Who. There's going to be another 20 million people around the world competing for this stuff on eBay that I've always wanted to buy and I've never bought because it's like, oh, yeah, that's just old Doctor Who stuff. That'll still be there next year. And I thought, ugh, prices could go a bit crazy here. So <laughs> this is very similar to our PDA discussion. Uh, I jumped on eBay and I bought a bunch of things. I think the first Hartnell Annual was one of them. You know, I probably caught up on some of the Eighth Doctor Adventures that I hadn't bought. All sorts of stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, it was late 2004 for me for sure when I knew it was coming. And I was very keen on Doctor Who again. And uh, that's what I got up to for six months prior to it coming out. <laughs> So this was a period where both I and my particular circle of local fans here in Melbourne that I'd you know, known for 10, 15 years at that point were kind of very divorced from fandom at this stage. We'd all moved on from the local club. Doctor Who was, you know, to all intents and purposes, dead and buried. Um, the telly movie came out. It didn't lead to a series. And I mean, that was nine years ago at this point. And so we were all sort of very sceptical. Plus, we're all living lives. I think in this particular group of friends in 0405, 06, we had weddings People were getting engaged, people were having kids for the first time. It was all very, mm. you know, grown up. And, you yeah. know, who, who sort of cares about Doctor Who anymore? And then these rumours started to come out about the show and then it was confirmed. And one of the really interesting points was that we learned that it was by Russell T Davies and mm. that basically he got this off the back of his success writing a series called Queer as Folk. Yeah. Now, I was the only person in this group of friends who had... A copy of Queer as Folk, let alone had seen Queer as Folk, and um, <laughs> I do recall actually, you know, bringing them over to my place one one time and um, just putting on a few clips from Queer as Folk. Like for example, there's this this wonderful scene where um, this 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 chap who doesn't pick up very often um, in Manchester actually you know takes a guy back to his place, thinking he's going to get lucky, and then the guy sees that there's a copy of Genesis of the Daleks on his shelf. He's like, oh, "Can we watch that?" <laughs> Um, I love and, it. And there's also, you know, like like a great bit about how um this this guy's friend later on says, you know, proves that he's a real friend and really knows him and cares about him because he's also learnt all seven doctors and can name them off by heart. And then they have the joke, <laughs> what about Paul McGann? Paul McGann doesn't count. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, there was this real sort of sense of, okay, this guy does know and love Doctor Who. Yeah. I can certainly remember finding out that Christopher Eccleston was the Doctor. And again, by pure coincidence, we'd all recently watched a movie starring him, the name of which I probably should have written down because I've forgotten it. Mm. Um, but it's one where he it, it's, it's one where he's goes completely mental and they accidentally kill someone and they have to... Shallow Grave, that's it. Ah. Um, so the movie Shallow Grave with Christopher Eccleston in it and he's he plays a real nutcase in that. Oh, really? Um, yeah, and like like he just goes completely like, you know, the, 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 the guilt of killing this person hiding the body just drives him, you know, nuts. Um, and he's really, really good in that. Plus, we had some memories of him in Cracker. 
uh, I can remember hearing that Billy Piper was the companion and all of us sort of going, um, who? And, mm-hmm. and, and I think it was somebody's fiance said, oh, she's a pop singer, I know her. It's like, oh, okay then. <laughs> um, and I remember that being really controversial in the UK, but yeah. here it just, it just meant, meant nothing. That takes me to the moment where I first saw an episode, but I've been talking. Rob, do you want to tell us about the first time you saw an episode? Yeah, this is really interesting, Dave, because unlike more uh, recent uh, series that have screened in Australia where we get it basically as soon as it goes out in the UK, this was still uh, a delayed sort of broadcast. Uh, it was it was months, as I recall, in between the UK seeing it and us seeing it out here. But I was really, really lucky. I'd been talking on a Doctor Who forum. I don't know which one it was at the time. And some lovely guy in the UK said, look, I will record this on DVD R's for you every week and I will send it to you at his expense... <laughs> Can you believe this? Because basically he'd taken pity on me that we weren't going to see it at the same time. He was hyped up that Doctor Who was back. He wanted to do his part in, I don't know, sending it out into the world. And so this guy would actually record it for me and send it to me. So some weeks, if I was lucky, I would have the previous Saturday's episode before the following Saturday here, if that makes sense. But generally I was getting it about a week and a half later than the UK but still miles ahead of what the ABC was doing. Well, I can top that. Oh, okay. Do you do you remember that the first episode leaked? It did. It did. So one of the friends of ours in, in this particular group works for one of Australia's telcos. So he had like the latest whiz-bang up-to-date 2005 internet, which, you know, was a big deal in 2005. Oh, for sure. Uh, and, and was very sort of into lots of forums and had connections like, like you obviously did. Uh, so he woke up one morning and heard that a copy had leaked and if you had really good, you know, broadband, you could get it before it went down. And he did. And so a text message went round that said, Code 7R, I have a leak of the new episode. Um, <laughs> my place at 2pm for a screening. Yeah. Um, to which I replied, look, I've actually got something that finishes at 2pm um, on the other side of town. I will be there as soon as I can, but I will be there. Yeah. Uh, got there about three, walked in and they said, oh, we couldn't wait. We've watched it. Oh. And then they said, but don't worry, we're going to watch it again for you. <laughs> Very and um, and uh, I, I, I just said, I said, look, look, no spoilers, but just tell me, just tell me, is it good? Yeah. And they said, look, there's one joke you're going to hate, but yes, it's pretty good. Yeah. And um, I can remember sitting down watching it, thinking this is you know really good, loving Eccleston, loving the way they went into it. And we'll talk about this, I'm sure. Uh, we got to the joke with the wheelie bin and... Mm. Um, I just I sort of sort of groaned and put my hand in my head and they said, yeah, we knew you wouldn't like that joke. That's the one. <laughs> um, but I also remember vividly when they got to the final confrontation and uh, the Doctor pulls out the little vial and says, anti-plastic. And uh, Rob, now Rob from 42 to Doomsday, just looked at me and said, hello, plot device. <laughs> and uh, little, little did we know just how much that would be a thing for the rest of the RTD era. Yes. Yes, very much so. Uh, but but yeah, look, after that, there was a huge break. And uh, then I was um, sharing an apartment with another one of these Doctor Who friends. And we would regularly download these um, on the internet. What must have been absolutely terrible, terrible mm. quality copies. And watch them on a Sunday morning. 
Yeah, I remember the download culture of that time. I didn't actually watch the the leaked one. I knew it was out there, and I deliberately didn't watch it. But I, I knew there was a download culture, and I seemed to recall they would they would get uploaded in parts, even to sort of break down the file size. Yeah, that <laughs> so happens people, sometimes. Yeah, people would upload them in, in three or four or five parts. I mean, it's it's incredible with the kind of internet we have now. I mean, I'm talking to you over like a 100 megabit you know connection <laughs> whereas, yeah, that's right. whereas back then you were downloading in these these megabytes in in parts it was it was amazing but my thoughts on on the first episode i really liked it i could see it was modern tv you know and i was wrapped with that doctor who sort of finally felt like it was something i could show other people you know and that was an amazing feeling because even as a kid i would cringe at doctor who a lot it's true i could see the acting was hammy i could see the sets were terrible you know i was a kid who grew up on star wars so looking at doctor who effects even as an 80s kid even as a youngster i was like no this is this is crap what i was was a fan of the concept and the thoughts i'd have in my head when i'd read the novels you know, a hundred times more than what the show's actually presented as. But here was a show that was modern and interesting and fun, and I could show it to people. And once I knew where the goalposts were, I could then become critical of it and say, well, that episode's better than that episode, and so on and so forth. But that first episode, I thought, was just great. Yeah, the wheelie bin thing was a bit silly, but I was just delighted that they'd brought it back and hadn't stuffed it up. (laughs) Yeah, it was... Really amazing, particularly, that the regulars landed so perfectly, so instantly. And I think we expected Eccleston to land well, and we didn't perhaps at the time give him credit for just how good he was, because we sort of expected that, and, and he didn't beat expectations, he matched them, and that's always tough. Whereas Billy Piper, we had no expectations, and were just blown away by how good she was. Yeah. Now, Dave, something we should probably discuss at at this juncture is that as soon as the series started, it felt like we knew that this Doctor wasn't lasting beyond the series we were watching, which was an absolutely bizarre situation to be in. Yeah, I reckon that it was only a couple of episodes in that we got the news that he, he was going, and very quickly also that this David Tennant guy was playing the role. Yeah, it's, it's crazy when you think back on it. And, and I, I put some thought into it this afternoon when I was looking at what, what we'd be discussing. And I was frankly mad about it. And listeners, please remember, we didn't have information that we have now. We didn't know of Chris's mental health issues. Um, we didn't know that he'd had a pretty average sort of time with some of the higher-ups on the show. Even now, that stuff's sort of slightly ambiguous. We assume it was RTD he had the issues with, but we still don't know for sure. You know, but back in 2005, we just had none of this information. And so I was just livid. I was thinking, you know, how dare you take on a role that you know, you, you must know is meant to be played for a period of time, you know, in a series that's just come back and you're chucking it all away. Like, who are you? How dare you? Like, like seriously, I was really mad as hell about this. Yeah, I remember a lot of people were. I, I wasn't so much. I think I sort of just took it in my stride, and I was kind of just amazed that the show was back. But also, I do recall about the same time, once the show had aired a couple of episodes and proved that it was getting the ratings, the BBC commissioned Series 2 and 3 at the same time, which sort of said to us, okay... 
this this show is around and this is show is lasting. Yeah, and look, when when Tennant did come in, I thought, oh, he's fine, he's won me over, and that sort of anger about Eccleston faded. But for years, I might not have been angry, but I was still annoyed. You know, until I knew more about the situation, I just couldn't believe that someone would take this iconic, wonderful role in a show I loved and just give it up after one year. It just, it did not compute. No, it didn't. And it did mean that sort of in fandom and in our minds, the Eccleston era never really consolidated. It it Mm. is amazing how good it is that he only had one season to get there. I think every other new series doctor, I mean, we certainly have said this about about Jodie, has taken a good season to really hit their stride and delivered much, much more in their second series. Equiston never got a second series and he stands only on that first one. And that he stands so tall is really quite incredible. Yeah, when you look back, he's he's obviously a, a hell of an actor. There are some aspects to it, though, which I'll get on... Yeah, I think later in this discussion, Dave, which I think might have made it easy for him stepping into the role then than it is for someone like Jodie or whoever stepping into the role today when the show's been on for, for so many years. But I, I might keep my powder dry on that one for a bit yeah, longer. Yeah, I think I know what you're saying. I think, yeah, we, we will bring that up. Um, I just want to sort of mention a little bit about the flow of um, myself and, and my circle of friends as the season went on. As this news was all happening, you know, it was successful. It was getting ratings. People at work were like, hey, that Doctor Who program's on. That was quite good. Um, Eccleston had left. The series had been commissioned for second and third season. Because over the course of sort of episodes two, three, four, five, we all had this kind of collective view of this is really, really good television. Mm. We're not sure if we like it. We're not sure if this is television for us. And, and it wasn't like a mad thing. It wasn't a hashtag not my doctor thing. It was just this kind of like, look, we were fans of this a long time ago. We've grown up. We're getting married and having kids. And maybe, you know, TV's moved on. And, you know, we, we shouldn't expect this is going to be for us. Then we had a viewing of episode six, which was Dalek. And mm. we actually had everybody over to um, the place where myself and a friend of mine, I was, as I say, um, sharing a flat with at the time we're living and we all sat down, we, we downloaded a copy of Dalek that morning. And, and again, this, this shows the technology. I could remember Andrew getting up at like 6am, setting the download of Dalek going, and like our fingers were crossed that by the time everyone got there at 1, it would be downloaded. <laughs> um, that's, that's what it was like. Um, but, but we did. And that was the episode where all of us as old school fans sat down, watched it. We've gone, nah, this show is for us. And we were all in from that moment. And after that, with maybe one exception, it just felt like hit after hit after hit after hit. And by the time we got to the conclusion, we were absolutely sold on this thing. But we look back now and we think, oh, the Exton era was such a good era. But it really did take a lot of us, myself certainly, a good half a season to really, really be sold on it. That's interesting. I differ slightly here, Dave, because that first episode... It's not great, but because it was the first one back, it sort of carried me through. The second episode, where we go off into the future on the space station, I actually thought was quite good, and I liked it. And then the third episode, where they go back in time, Charles Dickens, Mark Gatiss doing spooky, you know, ghosts flying about the place, I thought, this is really good too. I was actually on board the first three episodes. Where it fell apart for me is when we got to that two-parter, the Aliens of London two-parter, There were things in that, not just the farting thing, 
but just the look of the family Slovene themselves. And I thought, oh, this has actually fallen down. And so for a couple of weeks, it sort of fell down for me. But then, yes, Dalek picked it up again. So I was actually okay, and then I went down, then I went up, if that makes any sense. Yeah, look, I, I think it was a bit of a decline for us. You know, we quite liked End of the World. We quite liked Unquiet Dead. As I say, we were saying this was good television, but particularly when you got to that Slovene one, we were sort of like, look, is this television for us? And we were also very aware, and I think this is, this is a really important RTD point, RTD knew what gets a mass audience on Saturday on the BBC in the evening. He knew what people wanted to tune in for and was remarkably good at pitching that. Uh, I think Ryan Murphy is a producer now in the US who is equally good at that. But it's, it's something very, very rare where a producer can just turn out content that hits a mass audience. And the things that we didn't quite like about the show, some of the soap opera aspects of it, the character of Rose's mother, for example, which I know a lot of people love and that that's fine. She didn't work for us. We were like, Doctor Who's about Daleks and adventures and going off. We Why are they going back to London to meet her mother-in-law? Like, that's, that's, that's nonsense. You know, that, <laughs> but, but we understood that that was what was needed. That grounding in reality was what was going to draw the casual audience in. So we, we accepted it, even though we didn't like it. But then as they really got going, as they bought that audience, you could see them sort of going, right, everybody's watching now we can really start to dial up the the whoishness of the series yeah look i didn't even mind the mickey and jackie stuff i saw it in a in a sense as almost a uh, a modern take on unit you know like the unit family it, it, it was a perfect modern take on unit but we were sad fanboys who quite liked the old take on unit <laughs> fair enough Look, I, th- I think one thing to talk about here is the establishment of, I, I guess, a-, a formula, for want of a better term. And the first thing I think of when I think of this RTD formula is the actual episode length, because that was a huge difference to Classic Who. Yeah, it was. It worked so very, very well, and Rose established it. It's the only way that the show could have come back. But also within that, they had the double episode concept, and that... That idea that there would be an early double, there'll be a later double, then there'll be a season finale double, which again lasted well, well into the Moffat era, in fact. Yes. And and it's funny that I still think now, and I certainly thought at the time, they land the 42-minute ones far quicker than they land the two-parters. Isn't that interesting? It makes the writing tighter somehow. It, it does. And you really feel that one of the problems with the uh, the Sylvine two-parter, and look, look, some people love that one. I'm, I'm not one of those people. I, I watched it for the first time in 15 years over the weekend to prepare for this. I can see that what, what other people like. I actually appreciate it a bit more coming back to it with a with hindsight. But there, there is a level of silliness to it. And we'll talk about the effects in a moment. Wow. <laughs> but it really does feel like they don't quite know how a two-part is going to work. Is it two one-parters that have to, have to be connected? Do mm. you sort of backload it so a lot of the drama is in the second part do you have to build it to a cliffhanger and they really struggled to like build to a natural cliffhanger in that episode and and i think as well also in uh the second one uh in the empty child there's this real sense of oh my god we we know we have to have a cliffhanger because this is doctor who and it's 38 minutes to go and um um (laughs) quick somebody write a cliffhanger um And when you hear interviews with people like Terence Sticks, they talk about, or Eric Saywood indeed, they talk about how integral it is to Doctor Who that the drama naturally reaches a peak every 25 minutes 
where a cliffhanger emerges and then they can get back to it. I don't think they really got the hang of that with New Who for quite a while. And even to the point of they had teaser trailers at the end of the episode. So there was this massive outroar when they had a, the Doctor and his companions are in danger. What's going to happen? Teaser trailer. Next week, here's the Doctor and his companions doing something, having clearly survived. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hear But look, just, just in general, I, I find when we talk about classic Who stories, sometimes I'm complaining about them being too long and full of padding. But, you know, putting aside the two-parters here, going to that 45 to 50 minute sort of time frame just felt so right to me. And of course, I think the previous decade had been hammering that into my head that, you know, good TV is this length. You know, you think of things like Babylon 5 or indeed Buffy. Buffy seems to get name-checked a lot at this point as maybe one of RTD's inspirations for the the length of episodes. Yeah, and... There also was this sort of sense that a lot of drama was moving from the half-hour slot to the one-hour slot. Um, It was now a lot more common to get something like, for example, Ultraviolet, which was six 55-minute episodes. And Mm. rather than sort of 12 half-hour episodes, um, the sitcom was really starting to change at that point as well and become quite different and and, and really pushed out. And also a lot more serialised. You think of something like Coupling, for example, which I think was a much more serialised sitcom than others where you could literally watch them completely out of order Mm. yeah look uh, completely agree uh it was it was a changing time in television again something we don't even we don't even sort of think of when we talk about this era but it it was definitely there and and a very changing landscape for sure it was and even the look of it i watch rose now and some of those opening shots and some of those shots around london i just look at this and go you could put this in front of somebody who knows TV but doesn't know this this show and say, when was this made? And they would say early to mid-2000s, without a shadow of a doubt, in the yeah. same way that we can look at some stuff and go, that was made in 1985 or that was made yeah. in 1970. You look at Rose Down and you go, that is peak early 2000s. <laughs> exactly. Now, earlier you were talking about sitting with your friends and watching this and being, you know, sad old fanboys and all that sort of stuff. But there were several nods to Classic Who in, in the Eccleston era, I think just maybe to, to reassure people that it was still the same show, or even just to, to thrill them, you know, maybe a little bit of fan service. Can we talk about that a bit before we, we get onto the characters themselves? It's amazing how subtly Russell works this into the show, because I can remember it very much drawing me in. It would have meant something to new viewers, but in a different way, because it was it was being drip-fed. So there's that moment in End of the World where he just mentions that he's a Time Lord, or he's to- I think it's Jade who says, you're a Time Lord, and he mm. says, my planet's gone now. And we were like, ooh, what does that mean? And then it's mentioned that his planet disappeared in a time war. And then mm. you find out that it was against the Daleks. And, you know, all this sort of stuff, him being 900 and something years old, uh, all, all this sort of stuff is just slowly fed into the, the show. And maybe it was part of that drip feed that also was bringing old fans into the show as we more and more sort of thought, okay, yes, this is a continuation of the show to the point that suddenly, I mean, you get Dalek. And I mean, Dalek starts with the Cyberhead yes. in, the, in, in, in the cabinet. And that, that really is a moment for us. And, us, us and, and Eccleston does it himself, you know, that, oh, like he, he, he's being us for a moment. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd made a note of that, that that Cyberman head is just fantastic. Like, what a simple use of an old prop 
for such a big fan service kind of result. That's good. But, you know, just in general, I was delighted that the series wasn't a reboot. It was absolutely carrying on from the classic era, which my fanishness showing through there, it, it just had to be that. It could not be a reboot. I, I would have, you know, really arced up if it was a if it was a reboot. So that was a big nod to the past in itself, that it was acknowledging that yes, Colin Baker episodes from nineteen eighty five are part of this lineage. You know, something John Pertwee did in nineteen seventy two is part of this lineage. You know, and indeed speaking of Pertwee, there are Autons in the first episode, of course, as well. Yeah, absolutely. And again, as he has the audience in and he dials up the whoishness, you start to get a mention of the ISOP galaxy from the web planet. Mm. And then by the time you get to that last two-parter, you've got the little Dalek heartbeat from the Dalek spaceship. The sources, the sources look like the ship from the Dalek invasion of Earth. Um, <laughs> the moment where that the controller is killed, and it, it's it's a moment that is deliberately reminiscent of the end of Day of the Daleks, where Aubrey Woods is exterminated. And he has his little, who knows? I may have helped to exterminate you, and, and she gets <laughs> the same moment. Um, the way that that controller is sort of piped up and sort of cabled up in that thing. All these things that trigger our fan brains, but don't for a moment detract from the regular viewer. Yeah, magic stuff. Look, we've talked for a lot about this uh, this one series of Doctor Who so far, Dave, but we haven't dived down into the ninth Doctor himself. So I want to kick this off by saying, at first, I hated the look, because I think that's the first thing we saw. We, we hadn't seen footage, but we'd seen the look. And remember that McGann had been the most recent Doctor, uh, listeners. And I devoured the EDAs, and to me, that was the Doctor. He was this wild, Byronic, frock-coated man who looked totally out of time, and, and it had become a very, very sort of idealised image to me. So to then, for Doctor Who Monthly and, and others to, to come out and say, well, here's the new Doctor, and it's this bloke with a shaved head, and a leather jacket and you you go back and you you look at his work and he's he he's got this accent that's like nothing we've seen in doctor who before it was like christ what what is this i think on a forum i even said he looked like a mancunian um car thief and some people got got really uppity about that and upset with me but i said but but he does look at shaved head leather jacket this this isn't the doctor i i wasn't impressed at all but i think it was after the first episode i was like Oh yeah, I'm I'm actually kind of cool with this. It it just won me over straight away. But his look initially, I did not like. Well, this is an occasion where I'm ahead of you, Rob, because I loved it from the start. I just thought it was a natural extension of the Doctor's look for 2005, and mm. in a way that I kind of never really bought the McGann look. I I kind of remember even in '96 looking at the McGann look and going, hmm, that feels wrong. Like it just feels like it's out of place now." Whereas I think that the Ninth Doctor's look is just spot on and perhaps hasn't been bettered since. Interesting. And I look, I agree that the Eighth Doctor's look is, is out of place, but that's what I like about it because I think it's weird to have a guy dressed like that, you know, <laughs> in a time machine, basically. I think what's wonderful about it is that it works and looks not natural, but relatively indistinguishable in rows. But when you then go to the end of the world, and he's still wearing it. And then you go to Dickensian times, and he's still wearing it. Suddenly it is alien, but it's alien mm. in, a, in, a, in an understandable sort of way. And I, I love the way that they do that doctorish thing of he just keeps wearing this leather jacket wherever he's gone. And, you know, it, it, even that, that wonderful line in um, The Unquiet Dead where Rose is like, well, are you going to change? I've changed my jumper. 
Doesn't doesn't Dickens or someone say to him, "What are you, some sort of navvy or something?" That's right. Yes, yes. <laughs> he thinks he's a railroad worker or something. Um, look, I guess part of what won me over with the with the look as well was Eccleston himself inhabiting the costume. Yeah, you know, he had such good moments in Rose. I've waxed lyrical about this on a past show. I'm sure, you know, his, you know, I can feel the spinning of the earth. You know, I can feel it, and and all that. And then he says to Rose, now go home. And there's this plunking piano, like boom, boom in the background. And he's dark and messed up. And I was like, oh yeah, this this works, you know. So it, it, it was very early on. It was that first episode where I got into the look and his acting and stuff. But yeah, I, I just wanted to mark that when I first saw him, I was not on board at all. Yeah, I thought he was great from the first moment. He is a very good performer. I think that it's a lot of the subtle things that Eccleston does that really makes it for me. It's it's the out of place smile, you know, mm. when 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 a human wouldn't smile and suddenly he's grinning wildly because the universe is just interesting and fun. I love that about him. I love the way that he can switch between that and very very edgy very very quickly. I, I agree that line that he has. I mean, everybody quotes it about the Earth moving under his feet was was a moment to sell us all, but. The moment where I kind of really bored him was the next episode. And it's the bit where he's meeting all the delegates in, on uh, Platform 1. And uh, he has to exchange the gift. He says, I give you air from my lungs. Mm. And that's just such a wonderful, weird, bizarre sort of thing that just sells you for a moment that this is an alien world and he is a part of this. He's just yeah. a natural part of this. He's weird. He's different. And then when it goes on and you have those moments in this and the unquiet dead particularly of the doctor's inhuman morality and the way that he sees the bigger picture it's very tom bakerish without being tom baker that idea that he will be the first one to defend the gelf but he's also the first one to condemn cassandra yeah true look before we get on to rose though that aspect of Chris Eccleston's performance where he as you say he's just excited to be seeing the universe and isn't this great and so on there is that darkness though it's almost an act is what I'm what I'm wanting to say that that he's into everything because deep down something's beating inside that that is not good did you like that sort of contrast when it would come out Yes, it's an overword used, but I'll use the word gravitas. He brings it straight away. I don't see it as being an act. Um, I think it is natural, but it is that thing of his default setting is to melancholy and his default setting is to darkness. But through travelling and through seeing the universe and particularly seeing it with Rose, I think that he has moments when he does forget his, his troubles and he is just like, the universe is great. And then the moment passes and he's back to his sort of default setting. But at the same time, I mean, we talk about character arcs so much now, but I really see the arc of Eccleston's Doctor as starting off being, and this is very Star Trek, I'm going to reference Star Trek, starting mm. off being very much that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few morality. And through his time with Rose, he relearns that sometimes the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many. And to come back to the very end of the season and make a different decision to what we know he made in the Time War, I think is a really important change in the character. Now, you mentioned Rose there a moment ago, Dave, so I think it's it's probably about time we rattle on to her. And similar to me seeing Eccleston's costume, when someone told me Billy Piper was the companion, I thought, are they taking this at all seriously? Like, 
again, I was incensed about this because unlike you, perhaps I knew of her as being a pop star. Oh wow! And and yeah, you know, I I had friends in the UK, and you know, we would talk, and I thought this is nuts. We've got old mate looking like a car thief, and now we've got you know, cut price Kylie Minogue as the companion, <laughs> and. You know, maybe because there'd been rumours around Kylie being on Doctor Who back in the 80s, I thought, oh, all these things I've thought have always been so dumb are coming true. Like, are they going to balls up this re-emergence of the series? This, this could be bloody terrible. But again, like seeing Eccleston in the first instance, I'm pretty sure it was within the span of just seeing the first episode, Rose. I thought, okay, she's fine. This This works. <laughs> Just to go back half a second, I wasn't incensed by Billy Piper's casting, partly because I didn't know her, but partly because, as I said, I was really out of fandom at the time, so I wasn't getting fanzines, I wasn't getting DWM, I wasn't going on boards and boards and, and reading them, so I kind of almost didn't believe that the series was coming back. You know, there have been yeah. so many rumours that hadn't come to pass. I was I was very much like, you know what, when, it, when it's here, it's here, and then suddenly it was here. Uh, look... Rose is phenomenally good. She she stands out as one of the great companions. I, I know I have issues with where she goes in the, in the next season, but that's not what we're here to talk about. Mm. I, as I said, bought into her, if not equally as fast, probably faster than I bought into the Doctor. She was utterly, utterly believable. She was the right age. She was a very good actor. She had that ability to both question sometimes and sometimes puncture the Doctor's morality. So there are moments when Rose gets to question the Doctor and the Doctor says, no, I'm doing what I'm doing. And there are moments when Rose gets to question the Doctor and pull him back from that. And that dynamic is really, really interesting. She's she's a co-star of the series in a way that very few companions really were. You know, Liz Sladen probably was a Sarah Jane Smith. I think Lala Ward probably was. Sophie Aldred certainly was. But... Very few up until now companions got to be the co-star. And yeah. and Billy Piper's name is in the credits. And can we just stop for a moment and go, how good are those original series credits? Like that yeah. that that orchestral score, they they are so loyal to the original version whilst being so modern and sounding big and, and, and the look was amazing. I, I, again, I think the further they drift from that over the next fifteen years it's to the detriment. So they're, they're really, really good. But her name is in those credits. Mm. Yeah, look, I, I think Rose is precisely the companion they needed to kick off with, at least. You know, female, tick. You know, I think it had to have that classic male doctor, female companion dynamic to, to kick off. Uh, she's contemporary, tick. She's not from the past. Uh, she's not ridiculously pretty, but she's pleasing to look at. She's a bit of a tomboy. Tick. That brings in the sort of ace sort of vibe. You know, she's up for adventure. She questions the Doctor, like you've mentioned. You know, I think she's everything a companion should be. I think she is up there with the great companions. Yep. And, and this was absolutely the kind of character they had to kick off with. She's not book smart, but she's street smart. That's really important, I think. A question for you. Did you think that there was a romantic relationship or did you see them as romantic leads of this show when you watched it in 2005? No. I think they had a different relationship to past Doctors and Companions. It seemed a bit different, but not to the point of she was actually in love with him. So it seemed a little forced at the end when they kissed and stuff trying to think back to what I really thought, you know, 15 years ago. Yeah, I, I don't think I bought it fully. 
when he became the more dashing sort of David Tennant type, I, I bought into it completely. But with Eccleston, it was a bit... Mm, I'm not sure. I certainly didn't think it was happening. And I could remember being on the lookout for it. Because, again, like a lot of Doctor Who fans that went through the classic series, through the wilderness years and got to the telly movie, I think all of us got to that moment where the Doctor and grace kiss and we're just like no that doesn't work those damn americans what have they done everything everyone in american tv has to kiss you know and i just thought i, I hope they're not going to do that with this yeah and uh, i know and i do kind of remember at the back of my mind kind of just like i hope they're not going to fall in love i hope they're not going to kiss don't want that to happen yeah. and i never felt that it was even to the point that when he kisses her was sort of to, to remove the vortex from her or whatever, I was even like, okay, that's fine. Like, there are some fans who are going to want to kiss to finish the season. They've got that. They've got it without them being in love because I'm certain they were not in love because the Doctor can't fall in love. I say so. I'm a fanboy. I say the Doctor can't fall in love. Um, so kind of everybody was happy. But it was the awful line he delivered before the kiss, Dave. I think you need a doctor. It was like, oh, no. Christ, <laughs> if we got to the end of a really good series and it's, no, you need a doctor. You know, bow chicka wow wow like, you know. <laughs> that, <that's, laughs> sorry, but that's what it felt like. And I thought, oh, you know, you've sort of squibbed it at the end. Anyway. In, anyway, no, look, nothing but praise for Billy Piper as Rose in this. Uh, really, really good. Really, really, really good. All right. Adam, I guess, wafts around as a companion as well. We might get to him later because it's just just such a small thing. But Jack I want to talk about because I was struck dumb when Jack was introduced into this series, Dave. He was just over the top, suave and cool and funny and we weren't sure if he was a goodie or not. I thought, this guy's amazing. In fact, I think, I'll say up front, Jack is certainly one of the top three things I like about this first series if not my number one thing I like about this series, seriously. Jack is phenomenally good in his opening two-parter. He is phenomenally good in the closing two-parter. I think he doesn't quite work in the story in the middle, which, let's face it, I believe RTD sort of did have to rush out and do very, very quickly. And he, he kind of feels like, you know, Jamie in the moon base, like, you know, we'll just give him a couple of lines and hope no one remembers he's there. Um <laughs> But, but no, again, John Barrowman is somebody who I think we are now all very familiar with. I certainly didn't know him at the time. I, I'd never seen anything that he's been in at the time. Um, no, I, 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 I since sort of saw a few of the reality shows that he was a guest judge on and all that sort of thing. And I think a couple of years later, there was a, a TV show called The Beautiful People, which I, I thought was it was a really lovely little two-series sitcom um, about a young kid who, who basically learns over these two series that he's gay and he's coming to deal with that. And there's this wonderful monologue where um, your your favourite actor, in fact, Rob, comes back as the adult version of him. Davo? No, no, the other one. Oh, uh, the other one. Is there is the, there another the one, one you, The one you want to be the Doctor. Oh, Samuel Barnett. Samuel Barnett. So in the last episode, Samuel Barnett sort of appears as him, you know, I'm you in 15 years. Because um, the, the story is set in the 80s. It's, you know, autobiographical. Mm. And um, he has this wonderful line where he says, you know, it gets much easier. It's very easy to be gay in the future. We even have this guy on television, John Barrowman. He's in literally everything and he's gay. <laughs> I love it. Um, so, which kind of, you know, is another one of those things where I get the feeling John Barrowman was far more ubiquitous to the UK viewers than he was to us. We're just like, 
he's a really good actor he's got funny lines that's cool and we never had that oh my god John Barrowman's in this uh, anyway, before before we get on to perhaps, you know, gay characters and people of colour, the diversity of the series, because I think that's a nice segue there, we should really mention Adam, because uh, he is technically a companion in this series. He is certainly sold as being one, and I really, really love the character. He's one of my highlights of this era. I love the idea of somebody joining the TARDIS team and not being of the moral standards of the Doctor, and, and how that plays out. I think that Bruno Langley, who unfortunately has had um, some falls for grace, and, and you know that's that's not a good mm. thing, and you know we condemn that. But moving on, yeah, Bruno Langley again brings a really good performance to the role. I, I really really liked him. I really really liked him. I was disappointed when he left, although I loved the drama of it. But again, do you remember? Everybody thought he was coming back. There was this kind of sense of. No, 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 he, he can't just be in two episodes. There's going to be a payoff for this. Um, there were some people who said he'd come back in the final episode. Some people said he turned into Davros. Uh, you know, that, that just looks so ridiculous now. But that was a bona fide rumour going yeah. around, along with that Norman Lovett was going to play Davros in the season finale. It was that Adam would, would actually become Davros. And look, he even has that like thing in the middle of his head that could be his eye. Like, that was a bona fide rumour. and it's, it's so funny looking back now, but... I don't think Adam was that popular with other fans. I think some didn't like the character, some didn't like the performance, and some didn't like the idea that the Doctor could make a bad judgment about a companion and take mm. someone he shouldn't have. Yeah, I didn't like the character myself. I, again, we've talked about this on the podcast in the past. Sometimes someone plays a role so well that you actually don't like them because you don't like the character they're playing. Uh, and that was this for me. I, I had really gotten into the Ninth Doctor and Rose being a team. And sometimes Jackie and Mickey would be in the mix, that's fine. But to have someone come in and sort of mess that up, I, I actually didn't like him sort of stepping in and messing up the vibe between these two people I was really enjoying. Yeah, I, I loved it. I thought it was just the perfect thing to do at that point in the series. I mentioned a moment ago, of course, you know, we should talk about the diversity of the series. And I think the series walked a really nice line in this because... I remember the fear that some of fandom had that Doctor Who under Russell T Davies was about to become super gay. There was absolutely. there was a gay agenda, didn't they call it? Yeah, absolutely. It's gay agenda. Absolutely, that was really a thing. I can remember that being uh, very much a part of the zeitgeist at the time. And this was mm. a point where you know these things still weren't remotely part of the mainstream. If there was a lesbian kiss in a TV show about this time, it was like news. Yeah. You know, whether it was in Buffy, Deep Space Nine, you know, that was news. A, a male gay kiss was very unusual. I think, you know, Dawson's Creek got there in about season four. Like, and that was yeah. a big deal. And, and even, you know, just, just speaking personally, like, you know, the copy of Queerest Folk I had was something that, like, you know, a friend had done me a dub and passed me in a brown paper bag. Like, you couldn't go to the shops and buy this. And, and even when I showed my friends, you know, I said, I'm going to show you some clips of Queer as Folk so you can see, like, you know, the Doctor Who in this. Um, there was one who said, look, look, that, that's fine, but, like, you know, you're not going to show us any of that gay stuff, are you? Wow. Um, you know, that was, that was an attitude in 2005. Yeah. And so to see, you know, Jack particularly, that moment, his first scene, where it's not Will and Grace, and it's not Dawson's Creek, and it's not Queer as Folk. He's just a character you introduce. He seems funny. He seems suave. He makes an offhand comment about another guy's bottom, and mm -hmm. you sort of go, oh, that was a bit different. 
and that's just a minor point of the plot later like he's the one to go and distract the guard because he you know um, mm-hmm. like that's a really good line and a really good moment and it's so undersold yeah look I, I agree and I think you know there, there wasn't a gay agenda here I think Doctor Who was starting to reflect the times really well because going beyond gay characters and getting into say people of colour and the diversity in the series you've got a young black guy who's the, the love interest of the white girl. That was still a bit different. And, and isn't it really interesting, and, and I didn't pick it up at the time, but I do when I watch it back now, when Rose disappears for 12 months, there's this real feeling that Mickey isn't the suspect just because he was the boyfriend. It's like, well, he, he's the black guy on the estate, so it was probably him. Like, like there's this yeah. real sort of th- thing about, well, you know, it's a black guy, so he's going to be a criminal. Like, that... that, that message in there is really good but very subtle Mm, i agree and look on top of that you've got rose and her family are working class people rose works in a shop you know jack as we've mentioned he's he's pansexual omnisexual whatever you might want to call it you've got the doctor flirting with jack in some episodes you know so doctor who had suddenly taken leaps and bounds i think from where the show had left off but hadn't become some agenda heavy thing which i think people seem to be afraid of when they talk about the gay agenda you know it wasn't virtue signaling not that we knew what virtue signaling was back in 2005 (laughs) you know it just it just walked that line it reflected the times and it still felt like doctor who despite having these newer elements brought to the fore in it and i think that's the way to do this in any show you know if i can just say you don't you don't ladle it on and make a big deal about it you just have these things that that are and, and get on with telling the story. And I think maybe, you know, I won't go down the Whitaker rabbit hole, but that's maybe where her ear has gone a bit haywire. It's sort of, you know, saying, oh, look at this stuff we're doing. Look at these topics we're doing. And I don't think that's the way to do it. No, it was all the more powerful to see a very racially diverse cast in the series because it was so understated. It was so normal. Mm-hmm. It was normal to see this, and that was really good. So, Rob, let's talk about things that work and don't work. And let's let's be positive, because we, we are being. Let's start with things that do work really well in this. Um, and I might kick us off with one, if I may. Yeah, sure. And that is the guest casting. Again, something I remember very well watching this at the time. And I certainly got it again when I was watching it again for, for this podcast. You, you suddenly watch this and Zoe Wanamaker's in there. And Richard Wilson turns up in there. And Simon Kello turns up in there. Just almost every episode, there's a cast member. You go, wow, that's a, that's, a, that's a name actor or actress. It was really impressive that a show that had no cred and, and was really building off the legacy of something that, you know, didn't go out on top in 1989, particularly, you know, with amongst the industry, you know. Yeah. Turning up in Doctor Who by 1989 was not something a famous, you know, person did. <laughs> All these names suddenly popped up and again with very little fanfare. Yeah, it's like everyone was clamouring to be in this show. And it's like, really? Were were these people all fans when I was a fan maybe as well? And we just didn't know? Yeah, and I think a lot of it must be down to Russell T Davies, who has had and had at that time a really good reputation inside the industry as like, this guy can write. And, yeah. and, he, and he hadn't nearly had the success that he's had. I mean, I mean, Doctor Who was probably his real... I won't say his breakout role, because I think Queer as Folk did that, but his big mainstream role as a writer was, was Doctor Who. But, you know, when he'd done Queer as Folk, when he'd done The Second Coming, things like that, actors knew this guy could write. And so if you're Richard Wilson, and they say, oh, the, the author of Queer as Folk wants you to type in something he's written, he's in. 
Yeah, agree. Look, for for me, things that work just just tick all the boxes here. Frankly, you know, the companion works. Having the extra family of Mickey and Jackie works. The way Jack comes on for some story that works. It's all really good stuff. The false start of Adam as a companion, that works. Yep. It's all good. But I'm going to throw in an observation here, and this ties back to the very, very start of the, the discussion on the Eccleston era. I think it's easy to get this stuff right, or easier, when you have a blank sheet of paper in front of you, and it gets progressively harder to not repeat yourself or to, to top your end of series finales and so on as time goes on. So as, as daunting as it was to bring back a series like this. I think any intelligent writer or showrunner has a pretty good time of it because they're ploughing a field, if I can use this analogy, that hasn't been ploughed in decades. It's it's ready, it's rich, it's fertile. And again, not wanting to go down the Chibnall sort of rabbit hole, can I say this is why Chibnall's maybe having a hard time? He's no Moffat or RTD to start with, but he's someone who's now ploughing a field that's been done over and over and over and over he doesn't have the same blank sheet to work with, and I think it was that blank sheet that really worked in Russell's favour here. I think, like the Hart and Lyra, which, as you know, is another favourite of mine, there's no one in the Eccleston era that's saying you can't do that. Yep. And, and that really, really shows. And there's also no sense in this series, and I think it's the only time it happens in the new series, there's no sense in this series of them looking over their shoulder. They're just doing what they want to do, trying as hard as they can to make it really, really good. And they, they don't know what the ratings are going to be. They don't know what the viewer reaction is going to be. Will they like Christopher Eccleston? Will they like Billy Piper? Will they like the historicals? Will they not like the historicals? They don't know. And you kind of feel like right now they don't care. They're just making the series they want to make. If people love it, they'll keep making it. If they don't, well, we liked it. And and that's yeah. a, there's a real freedom to it that I don't think exists once Doctor Who becomes a phenomenon and suddenly it's a flagship Saturday afternoon show again. So it must be that. And it must live up to that. And it, it, ha- it, it has a pedestal to fall from after this. Yeah. But yeah, so you, you agree that it's easier in the first series to say, oh yeah, Gallifrey's destroyed and just leave it at that. For sure. Whereas by the third or fourth or fifth series, fans, at least some fans, want to know more. Well, how was it destroyed and who did this and who did that and how does this all tie in? And, and it sort of just gets bound up in continuity and, you know, to the point where in the last Jody story, we apparently had to have explained who the Doctor was. Whereas, could you, could you conceive of RTD thinking of that plot line in this first series? No, never. No, I, th- I think that freedom is really important. Uh, something else that really works for me is the build of the narrative and the idea that although these are separate stories and I, I really like separate stories and individual stories can come into with a starting middle and an ending, there is a sense if you watch the whole thing, it, it does build up. The Doctor does change, Rose grows with the series, Adam comes and goes, and that's a nice little little, little bit of an arc there. Um, Jack is introduced, that's another thing. And it builds towards the end. And I can remember vividly watching Bad Wolf would have been as a download. So, you know, sitting on a four, <laughs> you know, 486 PC watching a downloaded copy of the episode. <laughs> yeah. And getting to the cliffhanger at that moment where the Daleks have come back, thinking, wow, that's amazing, cliffhanger. Yeah. Then you get the teaser for the next one. And that moment of the clip of the Doctor how did you survive the time war? And that voice off screen, they survived through me. There is only one occasion since then in New Doctor Who that has had me as excited and as 
desperate for the next episode to come mm. around the corner as that moment. And it's it's kind of amazing, I think about it now, that by the end of World War Three, I thought this this is a show I'll probably stop watching shortly because it, it, it's good, but it's not aimed at me. That's fine. It's, yeah, it's, it's yeah. aimed at me. By the time I got to uh, Party of the Ways, I could not wait a week for that episode to come out. I just had yeah. to see the next one. And it, it, it's amazing how it brought me in over that yeah. course of that season. Yeah, I feel very similarly with that as well. You have that huge speech from Eccleston, you know, Rose, I'm coming to save you. I'm going to blow every Dalek, you know, <laughs> out yeah, of the yeah. sky. Then it's straight into the, the next time, Jack shouting, we're at war! Yep. And missile flies towards the TARDIS. I've got it all in my head, like it's recorded up there. Likewise, you know? I can see those moments. I remember those moments. Yeah, and it was just, oh my god, this is so exciting, this is amazing. Yes, yeah, I, I completely concur with you on this one, don't that Yeah, was... it, it built to such a wonderful climax. It was really, really good. And and look, let's talk about Parting of the Ways here, because it's such a shame that Eccleston left at the end of that series, but I thought that ending was perfect. And, you know, I'm not a fan of these long, cheesy speeches that they give doctors in their final mm. moments these days. Um. I, lo- I like a good, you know, tear Sarah, Sarah Jane. I like a good, it's the end, but the moment's being prepared for. And and I've got to say, you're fantastic. You're absolutely fantastic. And you know what? So was I. I punched the air. Like, that was that was the perfect out for the Ninth Doctor. I thought that was so good. Yeah, con- concur on all of that. I mean, Davo's final line is, Adric? <laughs> it's better than carriages. <laughs> True enough. Uh, look, that ties into things which don't work because for me, I think this is a really solid series and it's really hard to question much of it. I mean, I could go super picky and say, oh, the family Slovene, when they're CG, they look a bit rubbish, you know, but that's really picking at it. If I had to hone down on something substantial that doesn't work for me, I guess it's Eccleston leaving after one series. It feels like, oh, we've just laid all this groundwork and he's gone. But you're right, his final episode is fantastic, so at least he goes out on a high. But look, everything else, as I mentioned, the companion, Mickey and Jackie, the way Jack comes on for some stories, all of that's just really good. I find it really hard to pick at things which which don't work. So, so on my list of things that don't work, I've got a major, a minor, and a retrospective. Well, hit me with it. So, so my major is the lack of breadth in the series, in that mm. it's very, very earthbound. There isn't a lot of going out to alien worlds, and I like going to alien worlds. Yeah. Uh, they they do start to do that more as they get into it. I understand why they're doing it because the grounding modding audience. It, it it is the John Pertwee, you know, Yeti in your backyard is more exciting than a Yeti in an alien planet. I get that, mm. but but I did sort of by the end of the series want them to go to an alien world, and I think that that lack of scope is is a shame. They at least mixed up the the present and the future, though. Oh, for sure. And something like End of the World does feel like an alien world. But then you sort of realise, well, actually, no, it was in orbit of Earth. Like, like they never quite get out there. Even yeah. even the long game, even Bad Wolf, they're still in the far future in orbit around Earth. And I sort of thought, you know, there's no story there that I'll swap out for it. But I do remember both then and now. I think it's a shame they didn't get to do more alien worlds. The minor thing... And this is perhaps less a thing that doesn't work and more a thing that doesn't work for me, is that I still don't buy what I would call the soap aspects of it. And I can remember long conversations at the pub with my friends as this series was going out 
where we'll talk about the episodes and what we thought. And every conversation we had always had this moment of, but I hate the soapy stuff. I hate that she has a boyfriend. I hate their flirting. I hate that she's got a mum. But we all finish those conversations every time with, but we know that that's what the audience wants and that's the price we pay to get 10 million viewers. Now, I fully can see that there are people out there that love Camille Kajuri as... as um. Rose's mum that love that aspect of it that buy that soap opera aspect of it and and if that's an extra feature that's wonderful for you fantastic it's something that detracted from the series for me uh, and for a lot of my friends I don't mind it now when you're watching the classic era though don't you find that something like I don't know Legopolis where we see uh, Tegan needs to get to the airport and you know she's she's chatting with her aunt Vanessa this this is Tegan's life, and this is fleshing out her her life. And Tegan seems much more of a real character there than she does in just many of the other Davo stories, where she's just a character on the TARDIS. I think that it's great in an opening story, mm-hmm. and I think it was great in Rose. I think it really did ground Rose and made her a full character. I, I didn't like her going back on a regular basis, and and I didn't buy Jackie Tyler as a character. Again, I know people love it. Some people would say they're some people would say she's their favourite part of this series and that, that's great uh, she was a weakness for me partly because I'm kind of you know a very gun fanboy that likes alien worlds and Daleks and <laughs> doesn't need mums-in-law yeah true but then again you did like where they had been away for a long time and the 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 knock-on effect of someone running off with the doctor is people back on earth don't know where she is and they think mickey might be a killer you know that that made for an interesting part of the the narrative yeah no that that's a really good point and it's something i have appreciated as time has gone on most definitely inversely and this is my retrospective Mm -hmm. um it it is and i say this you know with love it is funny watching this now and looking at some of the special effects um, in, in particular, I watched End of the World, and I really enjoyed End of the World, I've got to say. That's just a wacky, fun adventure. But there are some shots in that we just go, oh, wow. Um, particularly when they're introducing some of the alien delegates, some of the guests who aren't like major speaking guests. They're just like, and there's also him, and there's also him, and there's also them. And I looked at some of those masks and costumes and just gone, gee, that's cheap and nasty. And yeah. and some of the special effects, I think the, the missile particularly, that is sort of going through London and... And everything in um, World War Three just looks so bad, and and I kind of chuckle looking at that effect of the spaceship crashing into Big Ben, which clearly was their hero shot because they use that every chance they can get. Yes, <laughs> and the, you know, and it was great at the time. And and look, it's dated. I, I, I've said before on the podcast, you know, I look at the first Harry Potter movie now, and there's some CGI in that where I just go, "Wow, that's dated." But some oh, of it, yeah. some of it holds up really, really well. Um, just as an aside, Rob, though, again, because we're being nostalgic this episode, mm. do you remember when we saw the first photos of the mops of Balhoon and everyone was like, oh, well, that's obviously the big bad for the next episode. Wow, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and he's just this sort of bank clerk that has about two lines and gets blown up. Yeah. <laughs> um, but look, look, if the worst we're saying there is a couple of things didn't quite work for me and you know what, after 15 years, the CGI isn't as good as it could have been or it would be today. Look, that's... I think that that's a testament to how much this series stands up. Yeah. 
Now, that just leaves us to talk about top stories. And I know that you jotted down to me in an email that you're probably more likely to talk about your fourth and fifth picks because your, your top stories are maybe obvious. So what if I go first and throw some names out there? We'll see if they correlate with anything you want to talk about and then we'll talk about some of the better stories. Yeah, sounds good. All right. Of course, given what we've just been saying, Bad Wolf Parting of the Ways is my favourite. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just epic. Um, but I think I'd be dumb to ignore Empty Child Doctor Dances. Again, that's very obvious. But I also really, really like Father's Day. Do you want to talk about any of those? Uh, well, look, I will say that in my what I said was my obvious top three, Empty Child Doctor Dances is my number one. Um, and we can talk about why that is. Bad Wolf Parting of the Ways was my number three. And we'll talk about why that is. Um, well, maybe, and, and look, my number two was Dalek. Yeah. Which I, I think we can't go past. And I think we've spoken about why... Dalek is kind of that one that brings them back, does such such a good job of bringing the Dalek back. Should we, should we dive into Dalek quickly? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, so just, I guess, to illustrate this point I was talking about before, about this, what we saw, I'm, I'm talking collectively on behalf of my friends, I hope they don't mind. Um, <laughs> we haven't named them, so no, it's no, okay. No. I can remember us, you know, being so, so happy about Dalek and loving what they did with the Dalek. It looked good, it was dark, it was menacing, it's a great story great villain, great characters, the ending the, that Caves of Androzani ending where the uh, the secretary suddenly turns the tables is really, really good mm. but we all sort of said that that moment at the end where the Daleks are doing the what does the sun feel like we're like, no, Daleks <laughs> don't have feelings oh, yeah. you ha- why does it have to have feelings because it's modern and it's touchy-feely so, so that like kind of really summed up the, the way that we were seeing this show at the time yeah, and look, I, I agree with that. And the, there's a dodgy special effect too, isn't there, where the, the Dalek disappears, if I'm if I remember. Yeah, it, it, it is a bit weird, and, and it was one of those unusual occasions where I think the production team kind of had to sort of bring out, or maybe Russell wrote it in a Doctor Who magazine or something, where everyone was like, did, did the Dalek self-destruct? Did it blow up? Did it teleport out there? And he had to sort of say, no, 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 it, it, it's gone. It's not coming back. Like, oh, okay. Because, yeah, the effect didn't quite sell what was happening. Yeah, but the whole, you know, what is the sun like? Oh, sun, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Father's Day, I'll mention briefly. I mentioned earlier, I liked the uh, the sort of storylines where the, the nature of time travel comes into the series and Rose actually being away has a knock-on effect in the real world. And here again, we look at another nature of time travel, which is going back and and trying to change time and whether that's wise what it can do and gosh some of the scenes in that where the the, the doctor is essentially uh well killed taken out by those um beasts and the tardis is no longer the tardis it's just a, a wooden box there there are images from that story that i think are just wonderful and the fact that rose's dad still has to die at the end and actually die not in a surprise accident but actually having to walk out into the road knowing i've got to go and be hit by a car in order to save the world like that's that's some heavy stuff man that's wow so i'm glad you brought this up rob because this is this is one of the ones i wanted to talk about it's number five on my list it was a moment that sort of backed home Dalek in that Dalek was a big wow moment and then Father's Day a couple of episodes later was kind of a real what we would say now you know it hits us in the feels we didn't know that expression at the time but but it, but it, but it does and it has aged remarkably well it blends cool time travel with a big emotional punch with cool alien monsters which is really important I think in Doctor Who but it does 
have a big punch and it has aged remarkably well i i can remember at the age of 25 watching that and thinking this was a big deal mm. you know i'm 15 years older now and a little bit further towards you know mortality and mm. uh the, the idea of giving up your life like that is, is an even heavier deal now i've got to say it really yeah. it really impacts um and, and again eccleston is just so good in that the way that he's trying to save individuals the way that he's lecturing Rose, his anger, his his desperation is, is so, so good. Uh, just a, a, my, my final friend's anecdote for this episode, I promise. You know the episode, you, you know the moment where he says, um, everybody get behind me, I'm the oldest thing here? Yeah. Uh, there, there is one uh, friend in that group at the time who was a number of years older than the rest of us. And there were a few occasions when we'd be sort of at the pub or walking down the street and, you know, there might be a bang or a car backfires. We'd say, quick, everybody get behind Victor, he's the oldest thing here. <laughs> <laughs> which he didn't like at all, but I'm going to make sure I put mention that. <laughs> that's uh, awesome. But, but 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 I guess that's just an example, though, of how much as fans this really did permeate into us because we were using the lines. Like, you know, we, we would be going out to the pub or going out with each other and, and throwing in these quotes from the Christopher Eccleston series because we'd enjoyed it so much. And also that it was the first in a long time, so you, you naturally sort of latch on to it. it. It becomes easier maybe to be blasé about a series when it's series four or seven or nine or, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that first one in a long time, it's like, I think you're just laser-guided on every single thing that gets said, and it, it, it's all you have of this new series. It, you, I, I would say it's the one I've seen the most because I probably replayed it several times in, even in that first year because there was no other new who to, to watch. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and again, look, something like The Empty Child, Dr. Dancers, which we've both put in our top three, Moffat's first writing in the series. Yes. Incredibly. It's just great. Yeah, incredibly witty, incredibly funny, amazing guest cast, twists, horror. I, I mean, that, that moment when the gas masks comes out of Victor Meldrew, like, yeah. that, that is sickening. Yeah. It's just horrible. Um, well, the sound effects especially. Oh, it's, it's really, really good. Uh, the dynamic between the Doctor and Jack, you know, I've got a sonic, la- sonic laser, I've got a sonic screwdriver, um, you know, <laughs> just works so, so well. It's it's creepy, it's wonderful. I, I think, as, as I said, I think there's an obvious reason why that's in both of our tops. Bad Wolf Party, the ways we've spoken about, the perfect conclusion to the series, real writing. Do you reckon it's dated a little bit with all the Big Brother stuff and the Android stuff and everything? Yeah, well, absolutely it has, but that's that's okay, you know, because I think when we look back at any era of Doctor Who and there's something contemporary in it from that era, it gives us a feel for what that era was about. And this was very much the, the big brother, you've been evicted, don't swear, you know, you're on camera, <laughs> you know, it's, it's it's what it was. Absolutely, and, and I think the proof that it works out of time and, and without the context is that for us in Australia... Particularly that middle one, the I think it's you know what not to wear is the show that they're sending up where they they turn it into you know they're going to put a dog's head on on Jack or whatever. I had no yeah. idea what that show was, but but I got what sort of show it was. Yeah, and, and you know we didn't have the same host for the the um, the weakest link in Australia. That there was an Australian version that kind of came and went pretty fast from memory. That's right. But we we sort of you know you can get what that is, but but the wit in those scenes is, is really really funny and. That moment where they use the um, defabricator on Jack, and uh, you know he, he he gets you know he, he sort of looks down, looks at them, and you know, ladies, your ratings just went up. 
I can remember watching that with my dad and sort of you know turning him and sort of looking at, at, at him laughing and thinking thank god that went down the right way because I'm not sure how that was going to land well that also that scene also includes where were you hiding that <laughs> you, you really don't want to know yeah yeah in, in, incredibly funny and something that like you could not have done in Doctor Who in the classic era uh, no. and and it I think had they had those jokes in rows, I would have been a little bit put off. But by the time I got to Bad Wolf, it worked. It was right. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, the final episode I had in my top five is The Long Game. Ooh, okay. Yeah, no one else seems to like this in the world. No. I think this is such an interesting story. We didn't mention Simon Pegg, like guest cast. Simon Pegg, wow. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's in it. I, I liked... You know, this is as close to Alien World as we get in the Christopher Exton era, which appeals to me. I like the twists. I like what's going on. I, I like Adam's story in this. I really do. Mm. But it's also a really good example here where there is a message in this story, which is very simple. Monolithic news is bad. Diversity mm. of news is good. And sitting yeah. at home being fed one point of view is bad. That's it. it it's not rammed home to us it's not a lecture the doctor doesn't turn to rose at some point and say well you know what if you only have one source of the news and you get it and i just think it's a really mature story i love it it's number four on my list father's day is number five i know that i think i'm alone in this one Uh, if anybody else loves the long game please tell us because i i want company Um, (laughs) but, but i think it's a really mature piece of doctor who and i love it Well, I'll I'll briefly mention Boomtown because that was an episode I didn't like when I saw it at all, but it's really grown on me over time. I didn't particularly like the family Slovene characters. You know, being back in Cardiff was a bit boring. Rose just wanting to run off and have sex with Mickey in a hotel room just seemed weird for where she was at at that point in the show and had sort of given up on Mickey at that point. So there was all sorts of things I didn't really like about it, things that didn't gel with me. But when I rewatched it again, maybe a year or two ago, that scene where Eccleston sits with Margaret Slaline in the restaurant and he is going to be taking her away to her planet to be killed for her crimes. And she has lines, does she have a line like, you know, can you can you look me in the eye when you you know saying this? There is some heavy, heavy acting going on, some heavy, heavy ideas. And I thought this is actually a lot better than I remember. So, you know, I've even gone back to the series in recent times and some episodes have gone up in my expectation. That's one of them. I'm not sure the long game would if I went back and looked at that. Maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't. But I do want to just shout out to to Boomtown as one I didn't initially like, but now I think is quite all right. I I loathed Boomtown at the time. Absolutely loathed it. Um, Partly because after this run of episodes, I'd really, really loved suddenly we got one I just just didn't like at all and it felt really bad it it, it felt like a massive low between some classics mm. and, and you're right all the things you pointed out just didn't work for me I still would have it down in my bottom couple although I do respect a lot more what's going on you're right that 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 two-hander scene between uh, the doctor and Margaret Slovenia is very very good I think it's probably moved above World War three now I think that would probably be my low point of the season yeah but if a story that I can respect is my low point, that's a pretty good thing to say about an era. Yeah, it's it's a pretty damn good series and indeed era because that's all she wrote for Chris Eccleston. Yeah, absolutely. And and I don't think the series would have been as successful with the general public without the three Slovene episodes. As much as they're in my bottom three. I mean, I mean they are my bottom three. I, I say that now. But I don't think the series would have been the success it was without them. So I'm glad they're there. 
yeah, the series couldn't rely just on old enemies coming back or, you know, budget sort of enemies. It needed something big, I guess, for the kids to play in the playground. And the fact that Slovene moves so easily into the Sarah Jane adventures in a couple of years, I think is testament to their power. Yeah, I agree on that. I love the era, Rob. It's a great, great era. Great, great Doctor. Yeah, I, I do too, Dave, which is why when we said what, what new Who Doctor were we to, I think it was pretty easy to settle on Eccleston. He's great. He's fantastic. The yeah. end. <laughs> I, th- I think I think that's a good way to, to finish on him. Fantastic is the word. Yeah. All right. What did you think out there at home about the Eccleston era? Write in. We'd love to hear you. Uh, hello at the DWshow.net or uh, Facebook or Twitter, whatever you like. In closing, Rob, we're obviously going through a period where a lot of, pe- a lot of people are stuck at home and have been watching a lot of things. Anything you've been watching lately you want to share with the listeners? Yeah, just briefly, Dave. I've recently watched High Score on Netflix, which is a, a multi-part documentary about video games back in the early days. It starts, uh, episode one is uh, Space Invaders and Pac-Man and things of that nature, and then it moves through home consoles and takes us pretty much up to today. So that was really, really interesting because it's an era I've lived through, and they interview a lot of very interesting people. Like when it comes to Space Invaders and Pac-Man, they interview this guy in the States who would make these add-on boards that they would add into the arcade machines to turn the games into something else, add different colours, add different sounds, make it harder. You know, I've never seen interviews with someone like that before. Um, for a lot of the Japanese games they talk about, they talk to the designers and the artists and people like that. It's it's just really, really interesting. Oh, fair enough. Uh, I've actually been going quite retro. Uh, since we did our special reviewing the first series of Picard, and thank you very much, by the way, to everybody who's written in with feedback. It's been really, really positive to hear the, the discussions that people have had after that so thank you yeah. um after that talk i actually went back and i watched a few episodes of voyager some of the ones with echeb who I, I really like and some of the ones that you know particularly the ones that introduced seven of nine and, and some of the borg ones from voyager that i hadn't seen in a long time and i also just sort of randomly like you know would, would scroll through on netflix and like oh that premise sounds good i haven't seen that one i'll, I'll, I'll watch that one yeah. And I've also watched some of my favourite DS9 episodes, particularly some of the darker ones that really push the Federation, like we discussed in our review. Stuff like Homefront, Paradise Lost, In the Pale Moonlight, Interama, Eamon, Silent Legacy. I've been watching those and I'll probably watch a couple more, but I'm looking forward to The Boys Season 2 coming out in about a week's time. I really enjoyed mm-hmm. Season 1. And there's a new show with Tom Holland on Netflix, I think, which... I have no idea what it's about, but I really like Tom Holland, so I'm going to go watch an episode of that. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Before we finish, Rob, can I give a shout-out yes. to a friend of the podcast, Hayden Gribble, whose new book, The Lurking, is out. It's his first horror novel. I haven't read this one, but I've read some of Hayden's other books, and um, you know he's, he's a really good writer. He's a good friend of the podcast, so look him up. Um, I believe he's on all the Amazons, but in Australia, definitely on Booktopia, where you can get Qantas Frequent Flyer Points, so why not? <laughs> he's jumping around genres there he's written some children's sort of sci-fi books this is a horror i know he's done sort of a spy book in the past as well he's also done a sort of a biographical book about um growing up in the wilderness years of doctor who as well so yeah 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 very prolific yeah very good well done hayden yeah rob yes that's, Dave. The, that's the end of our episode what are we talking about next month dave next month we are going to be talking about a classic doctor who villain can you guess out there what it is? Maybe, maybe you can't. Maybe you can't because it's it is slightly left of center. It, I think, it's Dave. like the official fifth favorite Doctor Who monster, or something. <laughs> I think. 
<laughs> we are going to talk about the Sontarans. We are. Their stories, they're, they're, them as characters, them as a monster. Whatever we feel like, really, we're going to be talking Sontarans. Absolutely. I'm going to have to bone up on some old Pertwee episodes, I think. Ah, well, for me, I think I'm going to have to go back and watch some Matt Smith ones. Ah, very good. <laughs> we'll meet somewhere in the middle. We will. We will. <laughs> uh, but look, we've had a very long chat this time um, because, look, we just wanted to gush about Eccleston for long, and I hope you've enjoyed that. But I think it is well and truly time to wrap up. So, I've been Dave. And I've been Rob. And we'll speak again soon. We will. See ya. Bye. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, or names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.